Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi everyone, it's Michael and this is Monday Morning 8am, a podcast from Firms Consulting that goes out every Monday where we distill the insights from the noise. You can listen to the audio version of Monday Morning 8am by searching for strategy skills in any podcast app or you can get a written version with all the links to the articles, pieces mentioned and so on by signing up on firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo. So here are the big themes we are noticing in the news this past week. So productivity is a big theme. And we're going to start with a tribute to the country of Bangladesh. Although it didn't really register in the news that much, the big accomplishment for Bangladesh is that this year it has been reported that Bangladesh has reached parity in terms of GDP per capita with its much more powerful neighbor, India. In a simple way of saying it, Bangladesh's output per citizen is now equal to the output per citizen in neighboring India. And this is a remarkable achievement because Bangladesh for a very long time had been considered such a poor country that no one had thought they had developed anything even close to a macroeconomic policy to lift the population out of poverty. So it's a very significant achievement. And it's an achievement that not only is important for Bangladesh as well, but also for other countries that are trying to go through the same path. And what makes Bangladesh unusual is that a large part of their strategy was about bringing women into the workforce and building the pillar infrastructure and policies to support a burgeoning textile industry. But why does this matter to the average listener? Imagine you have a family somewhere maybe in New York, that uh, just arrived from, let's say, China. And the mom doesn't have a degree, the father doesn't have a degree, they've got four kids, and the parents work at a restaurant. And every week, they take their salary, they pay off the necessary bills, but they only spend money on things that increase their ability to make money in the future. So if the kids want to go to Disneyland, no, they're not going to do that. They're going to invest money in things like... um, education, more tutoring, better books, going to the library. The thing is this, if you keep on investing additional or disposable income in things that rise the standard of living, your productivity will go up. The amount of output you produce in terms of dollar value will be more than the input to produce that output and it will keep going up and going up. The thing we always ask clients in our one-on-one coaching programs is, are you more productive? And by and large, people say, yeah, I did more today. I did more tasks. But that's not the definition of productivity. Productivity is whether you are creating more value for the time you work. So better question I ask clients is, how will you deploy your disposable income to increase your returns while adjusting for the input costs? In a manner of speaking, how will you spend your money to create more money? And that's what you have to think about. When I was a partner, I did a lot of work for state-owned companies. 
and I've been to parts of the world that have you know, recently become democracies and so on. And sometimes they inherit strong state institutions that were run by the military. By and large, what happens in almost all of these countries is they mismanage these assets. They do things that don't increase productivity. So you've got to think about this. Maybe send a gift to someone you know in Bangladesh congratulating them. But how does this apply to you? What are you doing to increase your productivity? Now, if you read the book Mavis, it's all about a productivity strategy. It helps you think about what drives productivity. Productivity has become obsessed with operations, which is obsessed with time and speed. That is not what productivity is about. It's about output value divided by input costs. And if you want to understand how to run an operation strategy, how to run an implementation program, Firms Consulting Insiders, who are members of our advanced knowledge management system, will be able to see actual slides that we've put together showing you how a typical company would go about doing the detailed steps to roll out an implementation that increases productivity. The other big thing in the news, or big topic in the news, is obviously China. And there's a couple of things going on with China there. For one, China has halted the $37 billion floating of the Ant Group, citing major issues around compliance and governance. There's also China in the news again, where it may block the $40 billion NVIDIA semiconductor deal. And of course, if you read enough, you know that China and the United States are involved in some tussles over trade, which are now extending to the way China invests in chips. So China is in the news, but what's the deep insight here? Well, BMW recently posted its results and they were a doozy. For one, they were much better than anyone expected. And the CEO of BMW said that a large part of this is due to the fact that their largest market in the world and the largest market for most companies, China, had a much faster and sustainable turnaround than most people had expected. Now, the interesting thing about this is that while we should laud the CEO of BMW for posting these results, I think that there's a strategic issue that many of these companies are not seeing. China is a large market, and it's a market we don't understand. Whenever I speak to clients and so on, one of the tests I do with them is I always ask them, who do you think is the most popular pop singer in the world? What do you think is the most popular food in the world? People tell me it's Beyonce and pizza and so on. But the reality is we don't know in the West who is the most popular pop singer in the world because that person is probably a Chinese person who sings in the local language. And in the West, we don't know them. The most popular food in the world, as measured by the number of people who eat that food daily, is probably something in China, which I don't know about. The thing is that we don't know much about the most important economy in the world. The most popular singer in the world is not the one mentioned most in the press in the West. If you measure it by the number of people who listen to an actual song, it's probably someone we don't know. Now, why is this important? Well, the Financial Times did a study some time back, which they covered in a, in a piece about the fact that German tunnel boring equipment companies had for a long time China as their biggest market. These are companies that produce the equipment. If you're going to build a subway underground, these tunnel boarding machines pull out the earth, basically dig out the earth. And for a long time, these German companies were very happy because they're doing a lot of work in China and surrounding regions like Vietnam and so on, and sales were up. But they've noticed something over the last few years, and that's that Chinese competitors have entered the market and they have displaced these German companies. Now, I understand BMW is a fantastic brand. Mercedes is a great brand. Tesla is a great brand. But 
at some point, there's going to be a homegrown Chinese version of that. It's only a matter of time. China is not going to be the second biggest and maybe one day the world's largest economy only by consuming things from outside. They're going to be producing their own things. And the question I always ask CEOs and clients in our coaching program as well is, what are you doing for your company today to position you for the time when you face Asian competitors? They are coming. It's not if, it's not I'll hand this to another CEO. You've got to lay the foundation today even if it happens after your tenure as CEO. You've got to lay the foundation today, even if you're no longer the manager of that unit in your company. How is it, if you're a pricing manager, how is your company going to respond to pricing when low-cost Asian competitors arrive? And the reality is they're not always going to be low-cost, right? There are companies from Singapore and Japan that don't compete on price. In fact, the Japanese, actually, most of their companies don't compete on price. So that's the inside change, not the rise of China. It's the rise of competition from China that's going to displace the service you are offering. That's the big issue. And that's normal and that's healthy. That's the way capitalism works. Competitors arise and the fact that they are there, they force you to do things differently. China is going to be no different from anyone else. They're going to produce competitors. And this maybe the scary thing or the nice thing, depending on which side you're looking at this, is that we haven't even seen Chinese competitors arise yet. And this is the amount of dislocation that's taking place in the value chain and supply chain. Imagine when they do arise and they start moving outside of their core markets. If you're a firm's consulting insider and you want to understand how a company can analyze a position where its core market is failing, we do a piece about a post office, a national post office, which is facing tremendous competition from Amazon, FedEx, and UPS, and is seeing its core courier and freight unit experience a decline in business. What does it do? How does it manage this? That's the kind of thinking you would need to apply. The other big theme is MBA programs. The Financial Times had a story about the recent rankings it's released. Now, I'm not going to talk about the rankings, who came out first and who came out second, because by and large, it really depends on how the Financial Times chose to have that ranking. I want to look at what these rankings mean from a strategy, productivity, national pride perspective, because that's more important. If we make the argument, and it's a good argument to make because the business schools make this argument that they produce the leaders of a country and industry. Most business schools will tell you this, the good ones. We produce the leaders in a country, which I accept. I'm not going to argue with that because while they don't produce all of the leaders, they do produce a significant amount of people who play a substantial role in influencing the corporate world, whether at CEO level, board level, executive level, management level. MBA graduates are influential, powerful, successful. They play a big role. If you look at Fortune 500 CEOs, Fortune 1000 CEOs, Fortune 100 CEOs and leaders, a large percentage went to some kind of business training, whether it's an executive program and so on. So I accept the notion that MBA graduates are the leaders of the corporate world. And I accept the notion that MBA graduates as leaders of the corporate world, they shape the direction of a country and the corporate destiny of a nation. That is true. Not entirely, but they play a very big role. But what I, the question I would want you to think about is this. If you look at how growth rates are moving in the world, Asia is growing very rapidly, not just the far east around Vietnam, Thailand, China, and so on, but large swaths of Asia. 
An earlier part of the podcast, I spoke about Bangladesh reaching GDP per capita parity with India. That's a big deal. Not just Asia, but there are parts in Africa that are growing rapidly. Now, if you project that growth over the next 20, 30 years, these are going to be important economies in the world. The same way China, when it first started appearing in the scene in the 1990s, people wrote them off 30 years later, they are an important and respected member of the international business community. The question I have is this. If MBA programs are producing the leaders of the corporate world in the West, and if, I'm not going to use the word losing, but if we are growing slower than the Asian economies for now, are we as MBA programs and MBA graduates not responsible for that? And the question is, how good is our MBA programs if the people we produce us to a position whereby we are being displaced at least on a growth rate perspective. I mean, how good are the MBA programs? And do we need to rethink the way we teach business? If the MBA programs and the MBA focus is producing the people that by and large have played a significant role, which has led to Western economies posting single digits, lower single digits, in some cases, negative growth rates, while Asian economies, by and large, who are not educated in the West, are producing double-digit growth rates. My question, is that what we expect of MBA programs? I don't want to say what's right or wrong, but that is the reality. And the question is, everyone needs to be happy. We wish that every person in the world, whether it's Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia, and so on, lives a prosperous, healthy, successful life. But how good are our MBA programs if our growth rate is stagnating. If we are being displaced, it's not about being number one, it's not about being number two, it's about are we doing the best we can do once we enter the workforce? And I think that's a better way to judge an MBA program. And it's not about whether Harvard is better than Stanford, whether Stanford is better than Macomb School of Business. It's collectively, all the MBA programs are the same, they all enter the same companies. If collectively all these MBA programs are leading to this outcome, collectively, how good are our MBA programs? And I want you to think about that. There's another piece in the Nikkei Asia, and I thought it was a very nice piece, about how Singapore is responding to the COVID virus. For one thing, they've made it harder for foreigners to get visas to work in Singapore, which is a natural response. And Singapore has been pretty good in terms of the way they've managed their diversity and kept a very open society. But have, there's been complaints that maybe they're tightening things too much to hire locals. And that's not a debate I want to get into because I'm not Singaporean. And I think that people who live there probably have more rights to talk about this than I do. But I do want to point out something. If you look at great revivals in countries, whether it was the revival of Russia under Peter the Great, whether it was the revival of Japan under the Meiji Restoration, all of it involved going out and finding skills that didn't exist in the country to enhance the country. When Peter the Great realized that Russia was far behind the so-called European nations in terms of warfare, manufacturing of iron and so on, he had to go to the Scandinavian nations and hire the best people at making these alloys so that he could outfit his armies but also bring the know-how into Russia. When Japan was trying to rebuild itself, it went and looked at nations around the world that had changed significantly and come together and he said, we're going to use Germany as a blueprint. 
And much of Japan's thinking at that point in the way they would set up the administrative structure, the army and so on, came from studying Germany. The barometer of success is always collective. We all want to go up, we all want to progress, we all want to be successful and so on. But sometimes you have to bring in external skills from outside if you don't have it and don't have the capacity to develop it in sufficient time and in sufficiently acceptable costs. The fourth big theme is the pain of changing business models. So there's a lot of articles in the press today about companies that are going through painful changes. Some of the ones that jump out is the fact that Volkswagen has announced a multi-billion dollar plan to go all electric. We know the story about Quibi, the service that did not build the following it wanted to in short form streaming videos and had to collapse and, and had to close down. All sad stories and you know things we hope would never happen. But when you read these articles, you gotta understand that changing a business model is extremely painful. I'll give you an analogy for this. Imagine you get up one morning and you talk to your wife or husband and you don't at all get the response you're used to getting. They're ignoring you, they're not listening to you. You think it's an anomaly. You go to the office, you come back, they're not there, they didn't tell you they're going somewhere. It's not that they're divorcing you, they just changed. In a manner of speaking, a marriage is whereby you have your primary market is your spouse. That's the market you cater for. You do things to make that market happy. You get signals that the market tells you, yeah, I'm happy with this. But what happens if the market changes? You know, some people say, I don't know who my husband is. He's a different man. A change in a business model is a little bit like that. As a business, you do things for your customers, but they don't respond to you. And you don't know what is happening. Your customers, you know, can be served with many different products, services, and prices, and so on. But there are so many options out there that you just don't have enough money, time, and resources to figure it all out. You are stuck, just like when your spouse doesn't respond. You don't know what to do. There is a level of paralysis. Every company that's ever failed will tell you they have a plan, a strategy, but they still fail. So what distinguishes plan from one that is successful versus one that is not successful. We all have personal business models. You have a personal business model whether or not you know it and are actively thinking about it and cultivating it. You have a skill that you offer to someone or one person, like a company, and they pay you for this. Your business model is maybe you're a tax accountant and you work for, let's say, KPMG, which is a good firm, and they agree to pay you monthly a fixed amount for the work you do. They're not paying you for the hours you work. They're not paying you entirely based on performance. They're just paying you a fixed amount. That's your business model. The question is, are you happy with that business model? Are you happy with the service you're offering? Are you happy with your remuneration? Do you really understand your market? Your market being your manager, your company, and your clients. Do you understand what's the best pricing? Can you change your business model? Could you tell your company, you know what? I want to set up an LLC. I want you to deposit your, my salary into my LLC. And... I'll set up whatever agreement you want to limit liability on your side, but that's how I want to be paid. Maybe that's the way to go, but the fact is you need to think carefully about what is your business model in life. It's not just Volkswagen needs to change its business model or the European Space Administration, and there's a great piece there whereby they're losing business to space exploration under Elon Musk. Do you have funding to change as a person? Do you have a plan to try new things? 
Most people, when their life reaches a point where they think they need to change their business model, they jump into consulting. But is that the best thing to do? The difficulty of implementing anything is quite complex. Finally, I want to wrap up today's Monday morning 8 a.m. by leaving you with some important thoughts. And this is advice I give to one-on-one case coaching clients. And you can see them on the website, people like Peter, Richard, Tatiana, Amrit, Andrew, and so on. The first thing I always tell people when you're thinking about anything, whether it's your personal strategy in life, whether it's work you're doing for a company, is basically a trend is your friend. When I was a partner and I'd work with young, bright analysts and associates and so on, many of them were looking for this very deep insight that's going to change the world. What I really want is tell me what the trend is. And this company should focus on that trend, but it should figure out how to make money in that trend. Because while it's one thing to know what the trend is, it's another thing to know how to make money in that. An example of this is cloud computing. Many companies saw it beforehand. Amazon wasn't the first. Microsoft saw it. Google saw it. Many people saw it. Others didn't see it. The ones who never saw it, they're so far behind now, they probably can't get into the space. But for the ones that did see it, they're also struggling because how do you win once you know what the trend is? It's a market dominated by Amazon, Microsoft, Google's behind, but you know, it's Google, they probably can catch up. And of course, there's probably some Asian companies out there that I've never heard of that are doing quite well and may even be bigger than Google in the space. But as you can see, even if you recognize what the trend is, you need to know how to compete. But the first step is you've got to know what the trend is. If you look at Tatiana, for example, with the luxury brand startup, which again, insiders can watch. And if you're an insider with access to our knowledge management system, you can see some of the slides around how we help you think about how to segment markets and think about it. But the bottom line is that once you know what the trend is for your market, you need to position yourself for that. But you see a lot of thinking around strategy and so on where people look for insights, but they don't ask themselves a very basic question. What is the trend going to be? And what are we going to do to benefit from the trend? The final piece of advice I want to give here is about leadership. There's a time and place to be the world's best analyst, but it's not the end game for your career. You need to do something with it. I recently spoke to a female client in the coaching program who had just become pregnant. So obviously I was telling her, congratulations, and it looks like a good thing for you, and I'm very happy. Maybe you'll name your child Michael. I don't know. It's on the table. Let's just put it on the table. We can discuss it later. But her reaction to me was very unusual because she was sad about it. She was sad because she wondered whether it would affect her career, whether she needs to tell her managers about it. She's quite senior, right? She's not a junior person. This is a lady that manages a division of 300 people. This is my advice to her. The company doesn't care about your pregnancy. Really, nobody wants to know about it. It's not important to them. If you tell everyone at work, they're going to say, yes, congratulations and so on. But really, you're making them open another email that they don't want to open because they just went on a course on how to not open so many emails to be more productive. So when you think about this, the company doesn't want to know about your pregnancy. Your managers don't want you to set up a meeting with them about how you're going to manage your pregnancy. What they want is for you to do it all, manage this pregnancy so that it's no disruption to the business. I want to define what no disruption to the business here because I think that the first time I spoke to her, she misunderstood that and had to point out what no disruption means. No disruption doesn't mean that you need to come into the office every day. No disruption to the business means that the outcomes that you would have achieved by doing 10 things don't change. But the way you do those 10 things can change. If you can manage this with your team, whereby you will not come into the office every day, you will work from home three days a week or two days a week, whatever works for you, and you still get the work done and the outcomes or the objectives you wanted to achieve don't really change much, 
your company is not going to worry about that. Your company is not worried about whether or not you're pregnant. They're really worried if you are going to be able to manage it. And if you manage it, everything's going to be fine. Now, she took that advice and she did stay at home two days out of the week. And she did set up her life such a way that she could call in. And so, and of course, COVID came along, which made it much easier for her to do this. But beforehand, she started doing it already. Leadership is about implementing things. I want to go back to that. It's about getting things done. If you are, like this lady, facing some change in your life that forces you to not operate in a traditional way, that's okay, provided you can get the job done. No disruption to the business does not mean things don't have to change. You can work from home if it suits you. You can work part-time if it suits you, provided the company is still getting the value they expected to get from you as contractually agreed by all parties mutually and of willful intent. So when you go through anything in your life, always remember that nobody wants to talk about the problem because they don't have time. What they want for you is to manage it. You need to think about what works best for you, but you must manage it. It could be anything. It could be the fact that maybe your nanny has left the country or left the state or went to work for someone you don't like. It doesn't matter what it is. You need to spend more time at home. It's okay. But you need to work with your teams and create a system whereby there's not no disruption to the process. There is minimal disruption and inconvenience to your team. But the outcomes you agreed to achieve for your company are still met. Or your whatever it is. Could be your own business as well. That's what's most important. So remember that you can do anything you want. You can do it whichever way is best for you. You don't have to look at what other people are doing. It's your career. It's your life. You need to manage it. It's like, what's the difference between deciding that I'm going to come in at 10 a.m. on some days because I have to drop my kids at, off at school versus choosing I'm not going to come in on some days but I'm still going to get the work done. Provided the work can be done and there's no disruption to the business, you can be a leader, but you don't have to fit the stereotype of what a typical leader is. You don't have to do things that you think need to be done. You need to get your job that you are hired to be done. As always, I'll see you next week, Monday. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.